Welcome to Dietary Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to answering questions about the nutrition sciences major here at UNLV. Our topic today is professional development through experiences, and our guest is Professor Leah Hansen. Leah completed her Bachelor's of Science from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. She then went on to complete an AP4 program at Northern Illinois University and also completed a Master's of Science at the same time. An AP4 program is sort of like an MSDI program now. Leah and her husband Ray have moved around the country with his job, and as he was promoted, that left her having to reinvent herself as an RD. When they moved from Illinois to North Carolina, Leah worked in a large hospital in Winston-Salem as the rehabilitation RD and then the nutrition support RD. When they next moved to Arizona with Ray's job, Leah became a renal dietitian and worked for Renal West and was responsible for 120 hemo and peritoneal dialysis patients. While working in dialysis, Leah began teaching nutrition at the community college level to nursing students. After a while of being a renal RD, she moved over to LTC and worked for Crandall and Associates, where she was an LTC consultant RD. She would go into various LTC facilities and inspect the kitchen for sanitation, check the tray line for accuracy, watch meal service to make sure the residents were getting the help they needed, and then co-sign clinical notes of the dietary manager. Leah also precepted dietary managers to get their CDMs and did all the in-service training with the kitchen staff. When they moved to Las Vegas, again with her husband's job, Leah was able to transfer with Crandall and Associates. After working in LTC for about six years, Leah applied to work for Abbott Nutrition at the local rep. She would call on hospitals, LTC, dialysis, and oncology centers, infusion companies, and she would sell Insura and and she would sell Insure and Glite and she would sell Insure and Glucerna shakes as oral supplements and all of their tube feeding products and at the same time uh, and all of their food and all of their tube feeding products and at the time feeding pumps and feeding tubes. But soon she became a hospital rep only and focused on improving patients' outcomes with nutrition support. Leah retired from Abbott after 22 years in February of 2023. She began teaching full-time at UNLV in the spring of 2023, where she gets to share her knowledge of working as an RD in the classroom. She likes to focus on applying nutrition to real-world experiences as often as possible. In her spare time, she enjoys traveling with her husband and her daughter, who is now a senior in high school. Professionally, her current focus is functional medicine. Leah just started the Integrative and Functional Medicine program from IFM. She believes that precision nutrition is the future of dietetics. Leah is one of my current professors, and I have really enjoyed learning from her experiences, which is why today's topic is professional development through experiences. There's so much that we can study, so much that we can learn from schooling, but experiences in the real world really do teach us so much. And I wanted to talk to Leah about all the different experiences you just heard about that she's had in her life that have made her the professional that she is today. The questions that Leah will answer in today's podcast were submitted from UNLV students. And if you would like to submit your own questions, please reach out through the Instagram at UNLVSNDA or the link in the show notes. Leah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Let's delve right into the questions. We had quite a few questions that came across that were just about your life. So I think students just want to hear about your professional experience. Sounds good. And the first one, they asked, can you tell us about your experience in school to become a dietitian? Okay. That's a really good question because I actually started out as a food science major Mm. and I was doing my undergraduate work at a community college because my dad was the administrator and he kind of said, you know, you can either go here for two years for free or you can pay for those two years on your own. And I was like, "Uh, okay. So obviously I picked that route. Um, And it was great because the classroom sizes were smaller. So I transferred to the University of Illinois 
mm-hmm. in Urbana-Champaign when I was a junior as a food science major. And then I started taking the classes, and I loved them, but then I was like, I think I might want to do something clinical. So okay. I went to the um, dietitian that was in charge of the internship, and I said, I think I might want to do something clinical. Mm-hmm. She goes, oh, we're going to get you over to the dietetics program. Mm. And then they moved me over. So it took me like an extra semester. But the classes were much like they are at UNLV, similar classes. Um, and then, you know, I finished my undergrad, and then I went on to an internship. I don't know if you want me to keep going. or you Yeah, absolutely. Point. Tell us about your internship. Okay. So I honestly actually wanted to tell you this, too, just because I feel like, you know, maybe in our lives we don't always make a choice that feels right and it's okay because we can just kind of course correct so i actually was one of the first people to do the computer matching okay and at that time it was just to see if it worked and it didn't really count so you still had to apply to all the sites yourself okay and i wanted to go like in illinois it really wasn't on my radar to go to northern illinois university where i ended up getting my master's and internship Mm -hmm. because there was a master's with it and it wasn't required so I was like I don't want to do that so I applied to a program in Indiana I applied to uh, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester Minnesota I applied to some in Wisconsin so there really wasn't a lot in Illinois for me to do Mm -hmm. except like the stuff downtown Chicago and I didn't want to be yeah you know driving downtown Chicago commuting yeah so I got into the Mayo Clinic and I was very excited and I went there and after six weeks my roommate, who was also from the University of Illinois, um, she got an ulcer and left. And after three months, I got mono. And I took a <laughs> leave of absence. And I just felt like I never fit in. And, okay. and when I went back to collect my belongings, and I sat down with the head nun in charge of the program, and it's a wonderful program, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. But I always felt like, you know, my uniform wasn't pressed enough. We had to wear these white dresses that had a patch on it that said I was a dietetic student and white hose and white shoes. I looked like a nursing student. (laughs) Um, I got in trouble for chewing gum in class. I got in trouble for bringing hot chocolate to class. I got in trouble (laughs) because my uniform wasn't pressed enough, even though it was polyester. And I just felt like it didn't fit in. So when I sat down with her, she goes, we want to put you in your class by yourself because you're one of the best interns we've ever had. And I was like, what? You know, because I felt like I didn't feel appreciated I didn't feel like I fit in and it was an 11 month program yeah because you spent three weeks washing dishes and I'd already done that like when I was going to community college I worked in a kitchen so I did the Mm -hmm. diet kitchen I served tray line food I did dishes Um, I was the only person who would say wait stop the stop the dish room line because someone left their dentures on their tray we should return (laughs) them because they cost thousands of dollars and everyone else would just throw them away yeah so um so I just felt like it was a misstep for me so I hmm. did leave the program, and and again, it's a wonderful program. It's just, I was 25 years old at the time. I'd already lived in an apartment. Yeah. I wasn't used to living in the dorms with every. You know, it just was not yeah. a good match for me. Okay. So I took some time, and I went on a trip with my aunt, who was defending her PhD, her dissert, her uh, dissertation uh-huh. in Massachusetts. So we drove up through Canada, and we got to Massachusetts. And um, while I was in Massachusetts, I went to all these different universities and I kind of just threw myself at them and said I don't know what to do you know maybe I should go to engineering school instead (laughs) and all these people who didn't know me from a hole in the wall said well just finish your RD you're so close even if you never use it and I was like oh okay so when I went back my aunt said on the way back she goes you know we have a program in DeKalb Illinois which is in the middle of cornfields mind you (laughs) And that is where I went. And my mm. uncle was a professor there. He, he's a botanist. He still is. He's, he's retired, but he still has a lab there. He's like 88. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I lived with them for a semester, and I did go that route. And it was a much better 
fit for me because it was called an AP4 program and I don't know that they have those anymore but it's kind of like they give you your binder and tell you where you're supposed to go and then you sit down with the, the preceptor and you figure out what you're supposed to do to meet all of the criteria. There's no pre-planned anything. Okay. So um, I got to spend two weeks with Ellen Satter in Wisconsin because I was, you know, most of my stuff was in Wisconsin because yeah. the little tiny DeKalb has one little hospital. So yeah. not all the interns could go there. We had to go everywhere. Mm-hmm. But um, I loved it. It was better suited for me because I had already, you know, I was so much older than everybody else and just had lived more independently. I was uh, an au pair in Europe for a year before I went to college. So I also had that sort of independent streak where I just yeah. needed something a little bit more independent. So it that's fit kind of, you it, to yeah, it fit me better. Figure so, out your own course. Yeah. So I wasn't planning to get a master's degree, but that's how I came about getting one. And the way they did it was kind of like part master's classes and then part internship and then part math. I don't remember exactly. It was a long time ago. Yeah. But, um, they so by the time I finished the internship, it was sort of like, well, you can't not finish the master's mm-hmm. because I've so much invested in it. Mm-hmm. So I did, just waited. Nice. And was the coursework like fairly similar to the internship where like you were learning about what you were doing in the yes, internship? Yes, I would okay. say so. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Yeah. So our second question is, how did your different RD positions vary? For example, what was different about being a renal dietitian and working in rehabilitation? Okay, cool. So when I started out, I went into a really big hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. When we, we I moved around because my husband's job took us around mm-hmm. the country and I sort of had to reinvent myself. So. When I started out in rehab medicine, that was back in the day, like, and it wasn't rehab like drug and alcohol rehab. It was drug, yeah. it was rehab like if you had a stroke or a car accident. Where like now, physical therapy, occupational yeah, therapy. Yeah, exactly. But it was more, um, today you would go to an, a long-term acute rehab hospital. Okay. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't stay in the hospital for eight to 12 weeks. Okay. Back yeah. then you did. And so, um, and so it was a really good way to kind of learn about the job because we had a big team and I could come down at lunch and say, I don't really know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Or, Can you help me with this patient? And so I started out there and then we had to do team conference once or twice a week. And so I always had to answer to the medical director, you know, about my patients and what I wanted to change. And I learned a lot from him mm-hmm. because he did really respect dietitians mm-hmm. and he really valued the opinion. So that was a good way to start that. Yeah. And then I became a nutrition support dietitian at that same job in North Carolina. And then when we moved to Arizona and I had to kind of reinvent myself, you know, again, because I'm more of an independent person and I became a renal dietitian, um, I don't know that they always hire someone right out of school. They might, but you work completely independently and mm-hmm. you're responsible for 120 patients. You get their labs but you have this complete autonomy that if you have to change their vitamins or their iron level, and they get IV iron, okay. um, you do it yourself. You don't ask hmm. questions. You have to round with a doctor. You have to go over the labs every week, or not every week, but every month with the patients. Uh-huh. And then, um, you know, just make changes with them. And you're trying to help, you know, their standards are that their albumin level, which in uh, acute care in a hospital setting isn't used anymore as a marker of protein status, but in outpatient for renal patients, it has to be four, okay. which is very difficult to get to, because particularly when you start dialysis, um, things taste funny yeah. and when they're uremic, and meat tastes like metal, so they mm. don't they kind of restrict themselves, and so it was just it's very different working in the hospital. You're part of a team. You're you're and that was before they had electronic health records. They had all paper charts. Mm. So I would chart at the nurses station. And and now I think pe- people do a lot more stuff in their office that kind of thing. But yeah. Then and I was very willing to get up 
from what I was doing and go talk to the nurse, talk to the doctor and say, this is what we need to do. Um, in dialysis, you know, I had an office, but I was always out on the floor mm-hmm. and, you know, on my little rolling chair, moving from patient to patient. And then people would come Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and they would come for four hours. I would have two chefs. So I'd have four, you know, however many chairs we had. So I'd have that many patients in the morning for four hours, and then they would leave, the machines would be cleaned, mm-hmm. and then I would start again in the afternoon with another shift of patients. So okay. I had to, um, I had, you know, it was required that you had to see patients, and you had to be making progress with them. So if their labs weren't changing, it was on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. So so that it's it was a lot of fun. It's very clinical. Yeah. Um, but if you're, you know, if you don't like working independently, it's you know, even though there were other people there, I was the only dietitian. Gotcha. So I didn't really have anyone to lean on. I mean, we did have like corporate resources and stuff like yeah. that. But, um, you know, and I, I would make patient handouts or do bulletin boards or stuff like that. Too. Is that pretty standard to be the only dietitian yeah. in a renal facility? Unless it's a really big one, there might be two. Okay. But um, you're, and then you're, the nice thing is it's pretty flexible. Like if you see all your, if you come in early, if you want to come in at 6 a.m. when their shift starts, the first yeah. shift, you can work for six to two and then you know, some days come in later. If you want to come in on Saturday and take another, take a day off during the week, you know, Mm. you could do that as well. So it was kind of nice. Nice. This question came to my mind as you were talking about that, talking about working independently with all of these, like on your own, but also with all of these other healthcare professionals who had different training than you did. Um, And then talking about going to school as well. How, what advice would you give to students who maybe like look at experiences like that and are like, how do you face that? Like, isn't that scary for you kind of thing? Like going, finding your own program and working so independently. And um, I, I know a lot of students have this, there's this like grouping in undergraduate degrees where, you know, anytime you're doing a project, you're doing it with another student or another student's doing the same project and you can kind of like bounce off of each other. But then a lot of times you end up in your clinical internship or you get into more unique things in your master's degree and it can feel kind of like, oh, no, other people aren't doing this with me, you know? So how did you face that, and what advice would you give? So I I think the first thing is, like, in the hospital, you know, I would always have lunch with a team of dietitians, so I could Mm. talk to them about something. Um, And then we were partnered up. Mm. So if my partner did cardiac and psych, so if she was on vacation, I covered her. So if I was on vacation, she covered me. So we we were teamed a little more closely, so I would tend to go to her more for questions because I was newer and younger. Um, With dialysis, I think it's just feeling like, you know, they really do respect you and want Mm. your nutrition opinion, and you do know more than you think you know. Mm. I think the hardest part... I think I've heard that sentence like three times in four episodes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you also... um, the hardest part, I think, is going from book learning to applying it, and it mm-hmm. just takes practice. So it's that clinical application where you're kind of like, mm, this isn't really what the book said. Yeah. Um, but the books, you got to figure, like, maybe could be as much as five years old, and then it takes about that long to collect the information beyond that. Mm-hmm. Or they could just be a couple years old, but it's still a little older than that. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it is, that's the hardest part, but there's really no other way to teach it. Like, in yeah. the classroom... It is more hypothetical, and then maybe we can bring in some case studies, but until you start doing it at the bedside and you start to see a pattern of things and realize that, you know, wait, this is telling me something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you, like, like the doctor at the dialysis facility was great and very knowledgeable, so I could definitely run things by him while I was learning, too. It wasn't like, you know, like they didn't want my opinion or didn't want to help, so. Yeah. What I'm kind of hearing from that is that, like, you kind of have to – 
the sentence that came to my mind was kind of be okay with like growing pains. Yeah. You get yeah, outside yeah. the classroom and you're going to learn so much. Yep. But it's going to be different. It's going to be different. Kind of thing. And that's okay. Because that's, yeah. that's where everyone starts. But they're all doing that too. So when you're a new nurse or you're a new physician, mm-hmm. you're doing the same thing. And the ones that are really seasoned have been there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Awesome. Sure. Our second or our third question is what was your experience at Abbott Nutrition like? Okay, cool. Um, you know, it's kind of funny because I didn't ever plan to get to go after that kind of job. It yeah. just sort of happened. I was a long-term care consultant dietitian here, and the rep used to always bring her manager to see me because I was Abbott-friendly. Okay. And so at one point he called me because he wanted to have a dinner program for dietitians, and I shared a bunch of names with him to invite them, and I just happened to say, um, hey, you know, I, where's my rep? And <laughs> he said that she was on a medical leave, and then I said, oh, that's too bad. If I hope she's okay. If she doesn't come back, I'd like to apply for the job. And he goes, oh, send me your resume now. And then mm-hmm. when I, my husband came home after work, I was like, oh, crap, I don't know what I just did. <laughs> um, I think I just, you know, I, I wasn't really looking for a job, but yeah. um, I was ready. I'd been doing consulting for six years, and I felt like I was the only person who smiled at the residents and said hello to them, and mm-hmm. it, it broke my heart to see yeah. that. And I was just ready for a new challenge. And so I did that. And the nice thing about that job is it, it never felt like I was trying to sell something. Of course, mm. I was selling things, but I was solving problems with the products that we made. Mm. And I was teaching a lot, which I love. So yeah. I was working with physician residents. I was working with nurse residents. I was working with dietetic interns, mm. um, just everybody in that role. Or just even, you know, because I'd been a dietitian for so long, some of the you know, brand new CNMs would, you know, kind of lean on me or just kind of like um, brainstorm. You yeah. Know, kind of like, okay, really wasn't part of my job. But it was just sort of like, this is how I knew people and, and all that. You have, you know, if you're going to go that route, you have to be a self-starter. Like no one's going to get up in the morning and call you and say, hey, what are you doing today? Yeah. So, you, you know, like I didn't have an office to go to. So mm-hmm. I had to get in my car and go somewhere. Um, but I, I, I got to really help with you know, just solving problems. We talked about malnutrition. We talked about pressure injuries. We talked about feeding in the ICU and properly feeding in the ICU. Yeah. You know, I spent a lot of time with nurses over the years. And when I, after doing it for 22 years, you know, they used to always hold. So there's something called gastric residual volumes where they hold the feeding and they suck back the contents of the stomach to see after four to six hours how much is left in there. Hmm. And some people have a misnomer that, you know, oh, well, if it's you know, less than 50 or less, it's it's a lot. Well, the stomach actually makes um, about 3,500 uh, cc's every 24 hours of saliva, hmm. um, or 1,500 of saliva and 3,500 of gastric juice. So if you add those two together and divide by 24, you get 188 cc's every hour. Hmm. So to stop the tube feeding for 50 is silly. So I worked through that with them, getting them comfortable. And then when I left, you know, I would be like, okay, how many of you have ever checked gastric residuals? And they would raise their hand because I did, was part of this nurse residency program with 70 nurses every quarter. Yeah. And um, I said, what number makes you nervous? And they would say, oh, 300, 400, you know, and I was like, oh, yes. You know, I made progress. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it was, that's the fun part that, that I liked. I liked being invited to their hospital meetings where I'd look around the table and I was the only one who had a vendor badge on and I was like wow I'm sitting at the table with them to help them solve a problem yeah um I'm not here to shove a product down their throat I'm here to talk about how you can decrease length of stay by feeding yeah um and whether you know maybe it's with food or how do you check um 
meal percentages. How do you chart that? How do you, you know, we had a whole poster on that. I mean, that really didn't have anything to do with what I sold. It just had to do with, um, you know, helping them understand, you know, you're supposed to take and record meal percentages because if the dietitian is consulted, the patient isn't eating. It's really hard for them to determine what to do if the chart says nothing. It doesn't mm-hmm. say that they ate anything. It doesn't mean they didn't eat anything, but it's super helpful if they say, oh, well, they ate, you know, most of their food at breakfast time, a little less at lunch, and they're not really, really eating dinner. Well, then the dietitian can get super creative yeah. and help to solve those problems. But if the chart doesn't say anything, then they're kind of like, well, what's the problem? They yeah. Have to, they have to go to the nurse, too. So That's a lot more teaching than I think when you when you say you were a sales rep my mind is always this is why you should choose Abbott products over this other product but that sounds it's like so much more just so much more teaching so much more I I love that your focus was never on the product it seems like it was on the patient and then using the product to make that patient feel better yep absolutely this this is um has historically been an Abbott town so Mm -hmm. so contractually I already had the contracts so therefore it wasn't, you know, it's like, well, you're already using my products. I just want to help you use them appropriately. Because if I have a family member in the SEU, I don't want you to feed them 10 cc's of formula, which is, you know, less than a tablespoon mm-hmm. over an hour because 10 times 24 is 240. And that's not enough to meet anyone's needs. You don't have to calculate what their needs are. That's <laughs> not enough. So, you know, like well, that's going to contribute to poor outcomes. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if I uncovered things, I tried to help work through that or even like um, one of the hospitals launched a um, early feeding protocol it was a a volume-based feeding protocol where they um, would feed at a higher rate and if the tube feeding was held then they would they had the authority to make up they could turn the rate up because normally Mm. if it's rate-based feeding you the nurse has to follow the doctor's order so if it says 75 cc's of whatever product they have to stick to that but if they do volume-based feeding then if they turn it off for three hours for some reason, maybe they had to go to a test or they had surgery or whatever, yeah. then they could turn it back on at a higher rate. And there's an algorithm hmm. that they follow. And so this particular hospital had residents at it. And I remember one of the residents, I had measuring spoons and measuring cups <laughs> with me. And um, they came over to me and they're like, oh, what do we do? We have our first patient who's going to surgery. The chart says the per- person was supposed to be NPO, which means nothing by mouth since midnight. Hmm. But they've been on this feeding protocol which is brand new and I so here's me I'm the rep and he's asking me what should I do so I said if I were you I would take the policy this protocol Mm -hmm. and I would go to the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and show it to them Mm. to make sure they're aware before you wheel the patient down there and then they cancel surgery because they've been fed Mm. then you need to figure out how are you going to fix these orders you can't have an order for NPO and an order for the protocol because the NPO is always going to override anything you're feeding Mm. so it doesn't match you know and but it was interesting as a rep to be doing that you know to be kind of like they're coming to me like what do I do but I had enough experience in knowing how medical records work and how orders work and all that which didn't necessarily so much pertain to my RD it just understanding over time how charting works yeah so you're going to learn other things like that that you're going to be able to apply and help your business like wherever you end up working Mm. You know, you're going to be the expert on nutrition, but you're also going to be a, the expert on a particular process hmm. that you're going to see and be able to help improve something. That is so cool. I love that. Uh, for the sake of time, we'll keep going. And the next question is, will you tell us a little bit more about your IMF certification? Okay, cool. Hmm. So I just started the um, Integrative and Functional Medicine program this 
fall. I like not very far into it at Do all. Do I have that backwards? Is it IFM? No, it is IFM. Oh, I so said I IMF. <laughs> oh, okay. That's Sorry. okay. Sorry. IFM. IFM. Um, it's all good. So it's it's functional medicine. And the whole point of it is it's looking at a whole system approach and looking at if is someone's body out of balance and what can you do to bring it back into balance. Mm. It looks at the root cause and lifestyle change, including nutrition. What's the meaningful purpose in the person's life? So there's a socio, um, not economic, but it's just like sociological piece to it yeah and then also stress management and things like that play a role too mm. um it it's ba- based on the foundation that instead of diagnosis which the word means a way of um knowing should be a process mm. to uncover what's going on not a label so most people who have a diagnosis now have this t-shirt that says i i have copd or i am diabetic or whatever mm-hmm. and they sort of become that diagnosis mm-hmm. but we haven't really vetted out why why do they have this issue and could we fix something mm-hmm. because na- nowadays most people just give a pill for an ill mm-hmm. you know so doctors are prescribing pills they're not really thinking about that sort of lifestyle medicine piece yeah. of it and so this started about 30 years ago which i was totally unaware of at the time and um, and I think back east, it's a Cleveland clinic where a lot of this work is coming out of, has started it where they're doing more of a team approach, where they might have a functional medicine physician and dietitian, but they also use health coaches, which mm. I think is a really interesting and powerful role, too, um, because the health coach kind of then is the person that the patient really leans on the most. So if the doctor or dietitian is prescribing different things, then it's the health coach that's really going to hold their hand and help them make sorts of accountability. Yeah, accountability, but also just, what did they say? I don't understand. Yeah. You know, what did they say? Or, or maybe they threw too much at them and they're, they're like, I want to do this, but I don't know where to start. Yeah. And that health coach can keep checking in with them. Might Maybe they can do sort of group sessions or things like that. So, um, so I think it's just a different way of looking at things. I hope that this is the wave of what's coming in the future. It would be nice to look at things more on an individual basis rather than, you know, working almost like use... a formula, like yeah, like diabetes plus kidney disease equals this right. kind of thing. Right, right, right. Like you want to look at the person. You want to look at life. the person. Yeah, it always goes mm-hmm. exactly. And you also have to look at their willingness to participate. So there are still going to be people who want to go get the pill for the ill. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's not going to change. But there's a lot of people who are sick of that. Yeah. Um, and the average person too. One of the things that came out in the program already is that the average patient in this country is on seven to 10 drugs. So even if there have been drug studies done with one drug, there hasn't really been a comparison to the risks of Mm. all of the drugs together. They haven't really been studied together because it would be really difficult to do that. So, you know, what would it look like if we could, you know, pick things apart and really sit down with that patient and and look at that a little further? So so the program is 12 weeks of... Uh, sort of didactic classroom work where it's self-paced. You're watching a bunch of videos or some articles to read and you have to take little quizzes. And then that's sort of the foundational part. And then there's six seminars over the course of every other um, month there's a seminar. And you just kind of plug in wherever you start the program. You don't have to do it in a particular order. Okay. Then you have to do a case study and then you have to take a national test. Okay. And then to keep it, you have to take a national test every 10 years. So um, so it is the same credential as physicians and nurses and dietitians all get the same credential. Okay. And um, I just wanted something else to, you know, ke- I want to keep learning. So yeah. it seemed like the next logical place to go. Will this be continuing education hours, mm-hmm. qualified community yep, yep, education hours? Yep. 
That's very cool. The next question built off of this, it came from the same person. Okay. So continuing to talk about your IFM training, they want to know how like you individually plan to take what you learn from IFM and incorporate it into your practice of dietetics. So, you know, at UNLV, I work full-time teaching, but, but I am allowed to see patients one day a week. I am not yet doing that, but what I'd like to do is be able to work with people who have real food sensitivities. Um, I have some food sensitivities, and I feel like that's kind of a population that kind of gets left behind yeah and it's very difficult sometimes to bring it to life I know even when I worked in the hospital I remember from that time where people would say "Ugh, this is too hard can't you just go grocery shopping with me or can't you can't you cook for me and and I don't necessarily want to do that part but it is interesting to be able to take it and break it down for them and show share some recipes or take their recipes and personalize it now obviously this would be you know work that would be just cash-based because there isn't really insurance that's going to pay for, at least right now. Sensitivities, yeah. Um, Well, sensitivities, but also, you know, the type of work I want to do where I'm there standing side by side with the Mm, patient. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Where, you know, maybe I'm charging uh, a certain rate to see them X number of times or see them Mm -hmm. in a group X number of times or do some food, you know, demos of, Mm. you know, maybe we could use ancient grains instead of gluten and what does that look like and how can we... make your favorite family you know cultural recipes Mm. so I just feel like that's kind of a population that kind of gets left behind and they just kind of deal with it Um, I have a family member who was finally diagnosed with with an allergy to um, the sudsing agent in many soaps so Mm. their skin was reacting to um, that forever and finally the allergist said we should do a patch test you have to leave this stuff on for three days don't take a shower and yeah. then it was like shocking, but but this person has purchased soap and shampoo and stuff that doesn't contain the sudsing agent, and their skin is completely different. So huh. it's like, you know, even being able to work with an allergist or someone like that, where there's a lot of kids with, you know, you see kids in the grocery store and they have spots on their skin or whatever, and you can't really walk up to mom and say, hey, <laughs> I think it's this. But um, if if mom comes to you, you know, certainly yeah. being able to you know, do an elimination diet. An, elim- an elimination diet is not something you stay on forever. You want to mm-hmm. try, unless you're anaphylactic, of course. But um, if you, you know, you should be able to work things back in. And how are you going to do that? What does that look like? If you have a histamine intolerance, mm-hmm. how can you use different either supplements or, you know, do a combination of low and higher histamine foods where you're, you know that, okay, I want to have things that, you know, I want to have a beer with pizza with pepperoni on it and you know, the tomato sauce and the pepperoni and the cheese and the beer all are high in histamines. Like, how can you kind of navigate through that and find a slightly different meal that's still pizza and beer, but not all of that? Um, So that's kind of what what I want to do with it. That's, it's so interesting to me to think about that, because I think the people that you're talking about aren't necessarily they're not anaphylactic, so they're not right. going to the hospital. Right. Right. They're not. It's not this dire emergency, but because they overall aren't feeling as well, or they have something going on that's unresolved, I can just see that leading into unhealthy choices, yep. building and building and building until we do get to the point of chronic disease. Be from those maybe choices that just branched off of whatever they're dealing with that they could have had help with sooner. And so this could be a form of preventative medicine in that sense. Yeah, because I think some people, too, who try to go it alone and omit certain foods even, where they don't understand what the food is, 
what the nutrients are that are in that food, then you're leaving out certain food groups and that you're like you're mentioning can lead to illness too. Cause they don't, they don't know. They're just like, Oh, well, you know, I yeah. don't like mushrooms. Well, maybe you don't like mushrooms because they're high in histamines. Oh, wait, you have a histamine sensitivity. Let's mm-hmm. take a look at this. So, yeah. um, so and, and then just misdiagnosis, too. I have a friend who had little spots all over her skin, and she told me that the doctor diagnosed her with sun poisoning. And I mm-hmm. saw her, like, six weeks later, and she still had spots all over her skin. And I said, I don't think sun poisoning lasts that long. Yeah. <laughs> I've had sun poisoning. It doesn't. <laughs> I know. At least it didn't for me. <laughs> so um, so I actually did check her genetic profile. And because as a dietitian, you can order that through like a company called 3x4 Genetics. Mm-hmm. And um, she paid for it herself. And it, she's just a friend of mine and just helping her out. But uh, she has a histamine sensitivity and a gluten sensitivity. And mm-hmm. she has Hashimoto's. So it's not surprising that she has both of those things. Mm-hmm. So not histamine, but the, the gluten. Yeah, along with the Hashimoto's. Very interesting. So our last, I thought that these last three questions really went well together. So we had a student, uh, they're a pre-nutrition major, and they asked just kind of a question for a dietitian. Okay. um, If that makes sense. And it's, at first I thought it was a little bit off topic. And then as I thought about your IFM training and hearing about that in class and hearing about it right now and just how much we can help people, it keeps reminding me that the body is not just something that we feed only or exercise only or sleep only like it's all of those things work concurrently and so she just asked a simple question can eating before bed affect how we sleep sure yeah absolutely so and i think it's not just that it's what you're eating um and it can also be things like caffeine intake you know some people are super sensitive to caffeine it has a half-life of seven hours which means it takes seven hours for half of it to leave your body Mm -hmm. So if you do have a caffeine sensitivity and you drink something before you go to bed, it's going to definitely affect what you're what you're doing. So, um, you know, I mean, you'd have to kind of tease out more specifically what they're eating and all that kind of stuff. But I think that, um, yeah, there's a certain flow to how our body processes stuff and and all that. And um, it's just it is fascinating to see how, you know, how that's happening. And then also, like, what's the precipitating event? Like, when did something change for somebody? And you know, what made them start eating before they, right before they go to bed? Is there, are they not eating well enough um, during the day? I know my dad wakes up, he's 87, he wakes up at two o'clock in the morning and he's hungry, but he hasn't eaten enough during the day. Mm. So, you know, there's that issue too. So I don't know if I answered your question, but. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just say to the student too, because I just know the student that, that submitted it is just transferred over to UNLV, just starting their pre-nutrition classes. And to keep that idea that I started this with in mind, that like you were talking about something in their diet is affecting their sleep or how much they're eating in the day is affecting their sleep and then they're waking up and wanting to eat and all these things and just remembering as they learn all these things about nutrition that it's a body, right? It's a whole yeah, body, it's a whole body all working together with all of these different factors at play. Um, so the other thing to add to that is it is a body and every body is different. Yeah. So that's the other thing I think with the functional medicine thing is, you know, when we talk about like folate requirements, so yeah. folic acid, we're talking about 400 micrograms a day, but, you know, maybe that somebody needs more than that mm-hmm. because their body is different or their body uses up stuff differently. So yeah. um, there is some research coming out. They're looking at mitochondrial function in people with long COVID and that they're so exhausted because something changed in how their body is actually producing energy in the in the cell. Mm. And so that's fascinating to me. It's like, okay, well, so once we figure that out and we figure out what the problem is, what, what's the solution? Yeah. You know, to, to help that person not continue to just 
you know, be on disability and not be able to contribute to society or live the life that they want to, if we can help them feel more energetic because we need to fix something, but we don't know what that something is yet. Nutrition is a science. So when we think we have all the questions answered, we don't. don't. (laughs) It's a a new science. Yeah. Very. It's it's so interesting to me too, that idea that we, it is a new science because we've just started studying it recently, but we have, you know, the entire existence of mankind has had to eat. Sure. That's right. Which is is just a foundational principle of life. (laughs) Right. But when I was in school, we didn't even talk about the microbiome. So Mm -hmm. now it's, you know, we know a lot more about it. Now it's standard that we talk about it. Absolutely. Very cool. So those are the last things of our questions. I just wanted to ask you, though, because we've talked so much about your career, and I think it's so beneficial for students to hear about a variety of career paths. And you just have so much over time that you've done and so many different places that you've worked that it's fascinating for students. But do you have anything any piece of advice or anything you want to tell to them? Okay, sure. So I think a couple things, uh, if you, you know, you may now know what you want to do and you think, oh, this is what I definitely want to do. Just be open. You know, like for me, I moved around the country with my husband and had to reinvent the wheel myself. (laughs) And and that's not going to be everybody's path. Mm -hmm. But know that you don't have to specialize initially. And there may be some job that you're like, hmm. And you get it and you you just have this wonderful experience and you're like, oh, you know what? I think I really do like this. Yeah. Um, like I've never really worked with kids just because of the career path that I took. But that's not to say that I don't want to, mm. you know, so it's just kind of happened the way it happened. Um, I think that be, also just making sure that, you know, while you're in your undergrad program, really focus on, you know, learning as much as you can, because as, even if you think, oh, I'm going to be, you know, a sports nutrition dietitian. Um, and I, I'm not interested in diabetes or I'm not interested in cancer. I'm not, you know, you, if you are a team dietitian, you're it. Yeah. You're the person you that you're going to come to you if they have diabetes and they're an athlete and they're going to want to perform better and you're going to have to know something about diabetes. So, yeah. don't, you know, you've got to keep that foundational knowledge and you got to pass the test. So yeah. you definitely want to make sure that, you know, all the classes, you may not think that food science matters, but it does. Yeah. Um, and then just all of the, other, you know, MNT, there's two MNT courses, super important. Mm-hmm. The metabolism courses, super important, just to kind of understand the base of, you know, how the body works so yeah. that, you know, if we do have, you know, more coming out about the mitochondria, then you know what to do. Yeah, so. you're, you don't have to go back to square one. Exactly. Reteach yourself and then exactly. try to figure out how this yeah. Yeah. plays. You, you're starting yeah. from that good point. So, yeah. Very cool. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. I Thanks have for having me. Just a couple of announcements. So we just had our first SNDA meeting of the year. I want to remind everybody, whether you were there or not, if you want to join SNDA, that you want to sign up by the end of next week so the second to last week of september because by the end of september we want to have shirts and hats ordered so that you can rep them all school year long and then our next guest will be delancey prince she graduated from unlv and from her internship at unlv she lives in las vegas and she's a dietitian throughout the valley and so we are gonna really excited to have her on and that is all i have thank you so much leah thanks again